We're continuing a study of Genesis 49, the first book in your Bible, in which the patriarch Jacob is seen on his deathbed, and it's really a solemn scene where he is prophetically blessing his 12 sons. And these 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so you kind of have the Bible in miniature in this one chapter. And more than just a study of these prophetic fulfillments in the Bible, what I've done is also drawn nuggets and principles to apply from each. And so I've titled this series, Lessons from the Twelve Tribes. Lessons from the Twelve Tribes. And what I began to introduce last week, for those who weren't here, um, is the fact that we often don't hear many studies on the Twelve Tribes. And as I mentioned, we typically treat Israel as one big nation where they all just kind of seem the same, but that's not the way the Old Testament unfolds. These tribes had unique fulfillments in their own stories within the grand story. And each tribe has its own unique characteristics and strengths and even weaknesses we can learn from. Uh, Last week, I covered the first four in the list, I just kind of put a little grid here just to give us an idea of where we're at in this three-parter. Um, we looked at Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And there was a lot there in these first four. We saw that Reuben was the firstborn. And, and by his lifestyle of immorality and instability and unbridled passion, um, he forfeited the birthright. And his tribe in fulfillment throughout Scripture missed out on really having a major role in redemptive history. Reuben produced really no name for itself. No judges, no military leaders, no prophets, no kings. Really nothing notable at all. Reuben just gets a a, a sauerkraut and corned beef sandwich named after it and that's it. I was proud of that one. (laughs) Uh, Simeon and Levi were joined together. Um, These tribes also committed, uh, they really fell short and committed a great egregious sin in Genesis with this incredible act of zeal where they just just annihilate a whole city in Shechem. And and for them, they also forfeit this baton being passed. And their prophecy was that they would be scattered through Israel. And we even looked at how God in his providence even flipped that around. And Levi, as a tribe that later repents and dedicates themselves to the Lord, um, that consequence of being scattered turns out to be a great blessing to the nation as, as they become the priestly tribe who has no inheritance except the Lord. And then we talked about Judah. And Judah was the one who didn't have a clean record either, but had demonstrated somewhat the most leadership among the twelve besides Joseph. And really the blessing is being split between him and Joseph, who we'll get into next week. And Judah receives the royal prophecy, and they would be a tribe that takes a leadership role among the other tribes throughout the Old Testament, culminating in the kingdom of Judah And really culminating in the King of Kings, Jesus the Messiah, from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Today we're going to go through the next four. This is why eight tribes in one day just 
I'm really glad that this is just so much better. Four, four, four. I don't know why I didn't see the division that way. We'll do the next four next week. I think it'll work out today with just the four next sons. And if you weren't here last week, we, we, really, we looked at the reasoning behind these sons' prophecies and traced their fulfillments. But more importantly, we gleaned lessons to apply to our lives. And that's really what I want to be the centerpiece of this study. So let's just jump straight into the text. There's some, there's some ground to cover and, and some nuggets to uncover. So Genesis 49, we're going to continue as Jacob is sitting on his bed and he's looking at his sons and he's saying his last words. And last words should be lasting words. And he now turns to a fifth son. He turns to Zebulun. And look at what he says. Verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. That's all he says to Zebulun. And this prophecy may not seem as loaded with meaning upon first glance, and we really don't know much about the person Zebulun and the brothers that come after this, but we know a lot about the tribe in the centuries that follow. We see from this prophecy and its fulfillment, they will receive an allotment of the promised land that is by the sea. And then if you look at the back of your Bible, you'll find those very unwrinkled maps in the back. I don't know how the last time you looked at them. But in the arrangement of the tribes, um, they're located right where to the west is the Mediterranean Sea. And they're in between that and the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is the region that uh, Matthew 4 says Jesus even began His public ministry. Now what's particularly noteworthy about this divinely appointed zip code is that Zebulun is basically being told not just that he's going to live on a nice coast, he's basically being told you're going to specialize as merchants for the nation. You're going to be merchants in the world. A merchant tribe. A business tribe. This tribe of Zebulun will have access to a very significant trade route and passageway in the ancient world. It includes Phoenician seaports, such as the city of Sidon, as mentioned, which was a very prosperous city at the time and also a very wicked civilization. That's where Jezebel later comes from. Now, beyond just trading and handling exports and imports and, and their own commodities, uh, ships are coming in to find this as a haven. It's a very strategic arrangement in real estate that God is giving this nation. And it's not by accident. Uh, there's a purpose in the Abrahamic covenant. Because part of the covenant with Abraham is that Israel would be a blessing to the nations. And this promised land was by design because Israel was to be a link between all those who would be traveling through the continents. This part of the world would be where people would be traveling from the European continent, uh, from the Asian continent, and from the North African continent. And while it was God's will that the Canaanites would be judged in the land, 
Uh, sometimes we have the wrong idea that Israel was just supposed to conquer every single set of pagans in the ancient world, and that, that really was not the case. They were to rid the, this land of the Canaanites, but the plan was that Israel would be a witness nation. As they set themselves apart to Yahweh and followed His laws and became the kingdom blueprint, the idea was that nations, as they're passing through and having dealings with them, that they would be drawn by the Lord to repent and place their faith in Yahweh. Again, like I said last week, that's the plan on paper. Israel was supposed to be attractive in a different way of life, in a different morality, in valuing life, in valuing family, in valuing good and just laws. They were to, be, to stand out in their character and above all, in their lifestyle of worship to the true Creator of heaven and earth. There's a significant lesson we learn from Zebulun's unique position on behalf of the nation. And it's this. Uh, We learn from Zebulun, uh, God determines His people's locations and vocations to be His witnesses. God determines His people's locations and vocations to be His witnesses. Zebulun was given their land and their role as merchants as a calling from God. That's actually what vocation means. It's it's the calling. And it's a calling from God that He uses to shine His light in the world. And it's an important lesson because there's a tendency to separate ministry from trades and professions. And we learn a lot by seeing that God, in a way, sanctifies the merchant. God didn't just call Israel's tribes to all live like monks performing ceremonies all day, every day. That's how we sometimes think about it. Like they're just all in this temple in a bubble. And that was not God's plan as the theocratic nation. Israel was, as we put it, to be in the world, but not of the world. They were to exemplify godliness and righteousness in the way they conducted themselves, even as merchants among the pagans, and thus draw them. We actually see glimpses of this fulfilled in in part in the Old Testament, um, especially during David and Solomon's reigns. Uh, Relationships get formed with certain other nations. We see this, for example, in the Phoenician king, Hiram, who helped supply many of the building materials for the temple. Or perhaps you remember the Queen of Sheba traveling all the way to meet King Solomon for his wisdom. This was God's intention. He, He wanted people to be passing through. He wanted to be that light in the darkness. And God's people today are called not to be escapists from the affairs of this world. Christians through the ages have often shined as lights as active citizens and contributors in their society. Their light shines in the way they do their work, in their integrity, in their excellence, in the way they live out their principles and influence. And of course, in the way that they find ways to share the gospel with others. 
If you look at the first couple centuries of the church, um, it's recorded that many of the ways that the gospel spread, in addition to evangelism, was workers. Uh, many times, merchants in a trade would be talking about, have you heard about Jesus the Messiah, this, this movement? And it started to spread as people were joined together in fields and in, and in building. And it still happens that way. That is the task God gives in our vocation, to shine as a light. It may bring opportunity for the gospel. This was the task of Zebulun. And it should give us a sense of calling from God when we consider where he has assigned us and also what he assigns us. There's another tendency here. Uh, The other tendency, some people, it's not a struggle to think about their job. Uh, Maybe they only see their job as God's calling for them. And some people give their whole lives to their career and ignore other stewardships and responsibilities. I mean, maybe they think, okay, well, yeah, my vocation is work. And they ignore their responsibilities to the church and, and have no other sense of mission in their family and in the world. Uh, That also is not God's will. God wants a faithful merchant, but He wants all of life to um, draw. He wants to draw us into all situations where we can shine as lights. And um, that's the task of Zebulun as well. I was thinking about another prophecy. um, I'm sorry, another portion of Scripture where Zebulun is given a commendation, and it's in 1 Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles 12.33, Zebulun is actually said to have been also experienced in war. And they were willing to give themselves to that purpose. It says in 1233, they were equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David with singleness of purpose. Now the reason that's so significant is because this is a a merchant tribe. And you know, with, with business and with wealth and prosperity, it's a temptation to just make that your world and to not really want to venture out. Uh, But this tribe was willing to leave behind the merchant life when God called them and they had singleness of purpose, which brought value to David. In fact, the the King James, I like the translation they have, it says they were not of double hearts. And God's people are not to have double hearts. Uh, We're to have singleness of mind. Uh, We're to be faithful wherever we are. And this gives us another principle that we could learn. Uh, Be all in whatever God calls you to do for Him. Just like Zebulun. Be all in for whatever God calls you to do for Him. And there's a significance even later in the New Testament when Jesus begins His ministry here in this region It's interesting that it's the region of Zebulun and that his disciples are merchant fishermen. And they're not of double heart. We don't know if some of them were from Zebulun or not, but it's interesting to ponder that they themselves were willing to leave their nets and go all in to follow Christ and become fishers of men. And God calls us to be all in. and important lessons from Zebulun about our role in the world. But we need to press on in this deathbed scene 
having turned to Zebulun and giving him this grand vocation, he now turns to his next son. He turns from Zebulun to another son named Issachar. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Genesis 49, 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Now this is another son we actually don't know much about, but uh, Scripture gives us many instances of this tribe's fulfillment and their characteristics. And when you look in the Scripture, some have interpreted this, this different ways. Some have seen it in a negative light, like a, you know, a donkey that's lazy. Uh, most commentators seem to agree that's the wrong way to look at it. Uh, a donkey may not be a compliment today, as if you were told you were like a donkey. I mean, I, mean, I guess Democrats want to be called donkeys. But donkeys in the ancient world were actually known as a virtuous animal. Uh, it was actually a compliment to be called a donkey because donkeys in the agrarian civilizations were viewed as um, the real ones who did the work. Remember that there were not trains and trucks to, to load burdens and to transport things. And donkeys were the major source of strength and transportation for major loads. And they're way stronger for, than horses. In addition to their strength and their usefulness in carrying burdens, they also have an incredible ability to store memory and to learn. And throughout Israel's history, it's noteworthy that Issachar is usually commended as a tribe for these very things. They're more of a noble tribe. They were known for not only pulling their own weight and carrying their own load, they were also able and often willing to serve like a donkey, to carry the burdens of the nation. They often had perceptive insight in how they could help when different situations came up. The name Issachar literally means his reward will come. And the idea is that this tribe, this son who will become a tribe, uh, was willing to do hard labor when needed with an eye to the reward They weren't afraid of discomfort. They could endure. Uh, This would be fulfilled, for example, there's several examples, but there's one in Judges. In that book, um, we learn that Deborah and Barak call for help from the tribes of Israel. And many of the tribes of Israel respond in different ways. A few don't even show up. A couple are kind of slow and kind of showing up. And there's a few who show up nobly alongside the tribe. And Issachar is one of the most noble ones that is commended in their song. It says that Issachar showed up and they fought nobly alongside a tribe that wasn't their own. They were all in to supply their aid, even at the front lines, carrying the burden. God's people learn valuable lessons from Issachar. For one thing, one thing we can glean from this, uh, it is God's will that we become strong 
and able to carry others' burdens. It is God's will that we become strong and able to carry others' burdens. This is a New Testament principle. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I want to remind us, and this is convicting for me, I want to remind us that it is God's will for us to advance toward being strong believers. There is a time in every believer's walk in which you start out immature and spiritually weak in the faith. But it is not God's will that you remain there. I've met many people who who just sort of accept it as just kind of a permanent identity that they're a weak believer. And it's like they never seem to even want to advance. Maturity is kind of looked on like the plague. Like it's a gift that some receive and can possess, but, but not really for them. They can't be that kind of Christian. And that's a lie from the enemy. It's also self-focused. You and I are called to progress in the Christian life and become strong. And get this, if you don't ever become strong and mature, you're keeping yourself from being able to help others. Now, each of us has our own load to carry in the Christian life, in our spiritual journey. In fact, some have seen this as almost paradoxical, but a few verses later in Galatians 6 and verse 5, it also says each must carry his own load. There are responsibilities or loads that each believer and no one else has to fulfill. Responsibilities given by God to your family and to your church and in your own pursuit of holiness. And no one can do it for you. And God's will is that each be strong enough to carry their own loads. And He gives us that ability. Uh, But as it happens in the body of Christ, we're, we're all beset, even as strong believers, with various struggles and troubles in this life. And there are times as the church when one who is strong can come alongside one who is struggling and help shoulder the weight of a burden. That's why it's not contradictory to carry our own load and bear the burdens of others. The metaphor that Paul uses has in mind a, a man in the agrarian world. Imagine a man who is walking from a field and he's, he's carrying a big burden of, of grain or something back to his family. But at some point, he begins to crumble beneath the weight. Someone else who is strong sees him and rushes to his aid and he doesn't take the burden off, but rather he sort of puts himself a little bit under and lifts part of it to ease the weight and to help him get to his destination. That's the idea of carrying burdens. And we all need this at some point or another. And don't forget It is God's will that we all come to a point where we not only receive this aid, but also supply this aid. Here's a convicting question I heard a a pastor ask once. 
Are you more of a burden creator or a burden bearer in the body of Christ? That's convicting. Uh, We're to be like Issachar. We're to uh, carry our own load and ready to help others. I should also note, as I mentioned, that the donkey was also known for its ability to learn. Uh, Not just for its strength. As seen even in this prophecy, the tribes saw the potential of their land. And they put themselves to work so that they could better serve the nation. They knew when to rest and when to work. And Issachar throughout the Old Testament is a very astute and observant tribe. They often analyzed situations in their surrounding nation and and then just were quick to act accordingly. And their mature insight into society is also commended elsewhere in Scripture, also in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And this this is a really good verse. 1 Chronicles 12.32 says this about Issachar. It says they were made up of men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Such a great line in Scripture. Uh, The context here is that when King Saul had died, uh, there was a time when the different tribes were sort of divided and unsure about who to throw their lot with. Should we continue with the line of Saul? Should it pass on to David? Well, Issachar had been paying attention. And it says they knew what the nation ought to do. They understood the times. And they threw in their lot in support with God's anointed king, David. There's a lot of instruction here for us from this. Um, Here's another lesson we learn from this tribe. Knowledge of the world can help us apply knowledge of the word. Knowledge of the world can help us apply knowledge of the word. Uh, Issachar not only knew the scriptures, it's noteworthy they also knew their times. And that is instructive for us. Uh, They understood the times, thus they knew what God's people ought to do. Uh, You and I are not called to just have those doors closed and just to stay here with our heads in the sand about what's happening around us. Now, it's of course of utmost and primary importance that we have knowledge of the Word of God But nowhere does Scripture commend this at the expense of being informed of one's society. I like uh, J.C. Ryle's comment on this. J.C. Ryle says this, These men of Issachar are set before us as a pattern to be imitated and an example to be followed, for it is a most important thing to understand the times in which we live. The man who is content to sit ignorantly by his own fireside, wrapped up in his own private affairs, and has no public eye for what is going on in the church and the world, is a miserable patriot and a poor style of Christian. Next to our Bibles and our own hearts, our Lord would have us study our own times. End quote. 
That's a good nugget right there. That's a, that's a great lesson from Issachar. We should be people who understand the times so we know how we as a church ought to act. Well, I need to press on again in this deathbed scene. There's a lot here in these verses we would be tempted just to keep moving to fast toward. We press on to the next son, and Jacob turns to another one named Dan. Now, while Issachar was compared to a commendable reputation as a donkey, Dan is compared to another animal that has its own reputation within the book of Genesis. And this is actually meant, I think, to catch our attention. Dan is compared to a serpent, which of course brings to mind the crafty creature in chapter 3 who tempted Adam and Eve to plunge the world into sin. Listen to what Jacob has to say to Dan. Verse 16 and 17. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I'm going to stop there for now. Uh, It's evident that Dan will be given an influential position among the tribes. That should be acknowledged first. Uh, He's given an influential position in helping to judge the other tribes. Uh, He's an influential tribe who even helps to lead and deliver when necessary. That's what a, a judge really means, a deliverer. And this is seen most clearly in the book of Judges through the judgeship of Samson. Samson was from the tribe of Dan. And the language of verse 17 suggests that this tribe's conquest would often be accomplished not through necessarily military might, but through their own cunning. Uh, They use trickery. They're very shrewd and crafty. Samson was kind of that way. Of course, he had might, but also crafty. I should point out that craftiness and even shrewdness are are not necessarily bad things. In fact, a serpent isn't necessarily a bad thing. Jesus even tells his disciples to be as wise as serpents. Uh, But in the context here of Genesis, and what we know about Dan in the centuries that follow, it seems to be a tragedy that he's a serpent. Their comparison to a serpent implies satanic influence. The same kind as in the garden. In fact, if you pick up on it, the language of biting at the heels used in this verse 17 is likely an allusion to the earlier prophecy in Genesis 3.15 about the serpent striking at the heel. Dan's existence would sadly be a spiritual tragedy among these sons. I don't have time here to go through the several specific passages. Uh, But if you read their accounts, uh, many of them are in Judges and in the monarchy of the northern kingdom of Israel. What you'll find is that this tribe had strong tendencies towards syncretistic idolatry. Uh, Meaning they often, in their craftiness, joined together true ideas about God and even His laws, and they would join it with the worship of the pagans. 
And to make it worse, they're often the tribe that's instrumental at many times to influence other tribes to join them. They influence other tribes to join them in idolatry. In fact, when you go to the kings, you see that uh, when the kingdom splits, and it begins with King Jeroboam in the north, Dan becomes a city that becomes a hub of idolatrous worship and pilgrimages for a revived golden calf cult. Why that was a good idea in light of having Exodus and stuff is it just shows how much they had fallen. A disregard for God's word, probably even twisting God's word. They syncretize. And it's tragic apostasy. And it seems to have brought their judgment because the tribe of Dan is not mentioned even once. It's omitted in the tribal genealogies of First Chronicles. And First Chronicles, the author actually writes at the end of the Old Testament. I know it's placed sort of in the middle, but Chronicles is actually written toward the end of the Old Testament. And they're gone. They're totally irrelevant. Off the map. They're also omitted at the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, when there's 12 tribes mentioned and a remnant from each. Uh, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned. Instead, the, tribe of, the half-tribe of Manasseh is mentioned. I don't want to give a totally bleak picture of Dan. Uh, we don't know. There are certain prophecies, especially in Ezekiel, that seem to indicate there might be a millennial revival of Dan and a role And Paul says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved, meaning holistically. But for the most part, it seems Dan uh, fell into spiritual danger. And in verse 18, it's the only time in this whole list of blessings, Jacob actually stops to pray. It's the only time he actually stops talking to his sons, and it's as though he, he prays and intercedes to God. It says this in verse 18, I wait for Your salvation, O Lord. He could of course mean a a generic salvation of deliverance for the nation, that they wouldn't totally fall to their enemies, but it seems more likely in light of what we know that in retrospect, it was the spiritual situation. It was that they needed salvation. There was an, a danger in apostasy of many in this tribe falling away and being lost. Proving that they were never really of the true children. Because no one can lose salvation. But they could demonstrate they never had it. Well, we learn an important lesson from Dan. It's more of a sobering lesson. Uh, Here's what we learned from Dan. Uh, Beware of the devil's influence from within the circles of God's people. That's the lesson I got from this. Uh, Beware of the devil's influence from within the circles of God's people. This has often been a crucial reminder for the church. Although we must be alert about the immoral influence of our surrounding culture, and we talk about that a lot, uh, we tend to sometimes forget the more subtle danger that comes from within. 
Satan loves to work as an angel of light. And he loves to spread false teaching by mixing error with truth in the name of Christianity. Uh, Beware of teachings that seem to question the plain truths of the Gospel. It is the duty of, of pastors to warn their people to not compromise the faith that they first heard. In fact, every teacher is to be tested by the teachings of the Bible. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. It could also come from a congregant, someone who found a new teaching and they want to share it with the body. This happens in the New Testament as well. Paul had to deliver certain people to church discipline, like like getting rid of gangrene. Test everyone's teachings by the simplicity of the faith. And here's a good indicator. If if it sounds really strange and out there and and mystical, um, and it's not the simple faith that a child can understand, there's a red flag. Test everyone by the Bible, regardless of their rank in a church or their credentials, regardless if they're a scholar or know the original languages regardless if they're seemingly kind and have a compassionate-seeming character. Satan loves to use that. Oh, he's such a good pastor. He, he has a really interesting teaching. And look at how much good he's doing. Paul had this concern to the Corinthians. And he actually uses um, the idea of the serpent as a warning. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Notice what he tells them. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray, get this, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Dan began with blessing. Uh, They were given a tribe. They were even given an allotment of land. They were blessed. They were given a position of judging the people. But they fell away. And they became omitted. And likewise, a church may begin strong, uh, but can become susceptible to Satan. And according to Jesus, to the churches in Revelation... Uh, He himself may take away the lampstand of a church if they turn away. Uh, The lesson we learn from Dan is sobering, uh, but it's still relevant as a warning today. And I think we should never get too comfortable thinking that we have all this sound doctrine and we would never turn to this and that. We're to be on guard. I'm going to move on to the next sun, and it'll be the, the final one we look at in our time. And then I'm going to close and leave the final four tribes for next week. Uh, like the last few sons, we actually don't know much about the next one. His name is Gad. And I guess all we really know about these sons is that they did have their faults. They, they join in, in putting Joseph into slavery. But we don't really know, really know much about their individual characteristics. But we get an idea of their characteristics as we look to their fulfillment. We get an idea of Gad by looking at this prophecy and what came after. Here's what Jacob prophesies to Gad. 
in this one pithy verse. Verse 19. Raiders of the lost ark. I'm just kidding. That's a test to see if you're following me. (laughs) Okay. The real prophetic word. Raiders shall raid Dan, but he shall raid at their heels. (laughs) Oh, I said Dan. Gad. (laughs) Perfect. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. This prophecy finds fulfillment in the centuries that follow. When the Israelites had entered into conquest and settled into the promised land. And what would happen is that instead of waiting for God's allotment, as they're traveling and conquering through the land of Canaan, Gad was a tribe, just like we learned about Reuben last week, who were thinking ahead, and they decided instead of waiting for God and His allotment of the land, they approach Moses and they request that they can have the land that they're passing through on the east of the Jordan. They see the the grassy lands, and they have a bunch of cattle. And it's pleasing to their eyes. And it's an area that unfortunately is also bordered by hostile enemies on the outside. The Ammonites and the Moabites, and later on the Philistines. But that wasn't a major concern for Gad, just like it wasn't for instable, impulsive Reuben. Uh, They're passing through this land, and they see how good it's going to be for their cattle and how advantageous it would be. And they approach Moses and decide, we want this land. We don't really need to see what else there is. Uh, Let us just stay here. And, And Moses gives a warning, and he says, You're going to tempt the other tribes to not conquer the rest of the land. You're not sending your soldiers to go and conquer. You just want to stop. And they make an arrangement and they end up staying. But it leads to a lot of consequences in their history. Because the problem, as I mentioned, is that they're going to be bordered by all these enemies. They didn't wish to consult God and what He would provide, but rather they took it upon themselves to settle on what seemed Obviously advantageous and prosperous and safe. But it would be anything but safe. There was truth in their concern. It would be advantageous for their cattle. But they failed to consider all the implications. They would have the grassy fields at the expense of their safety. As Jacob predicts, they would become harassed by raiders. Bands of marauders from these neighboring enemies of Israel. And they would be in this constant state of danger all the time. The prophecy focuses on their physical danger. The idea of people coming in and and plundering and they have to continue to fight and defend themselves. But we also know from its subsequent history that they were vulnerable to accepting the ideas from these neighbors. There was a spiritual danger that they didn't consider. And they would end up adopting many of the evil practices and beliefs of these neighboring enemies. Gad has the same problem that God's people still have today. Here's a lesson we learn from Gad's 
foolish and hasty decision. We learn this as a principle. Seek God and His wisdom before choosing what seems good to your eyes. Seek God and His wisdom before choosing what seems good to your eyes. The centuries that follow wouldn't just be fighting and defending. There would be a lot of loss and casualties. People dying from these raids. If they had just sought God. Scripture encourages us again and again to ask God for wisdom in life. And God delights to give such wisdom for our good. It says He gives liberally to all who ask Him. I want to note that we don't seek this wisdom to receive some kind of mystical experience, like an inner voice that tells us what to do. I think God's Spirit does impress things on our hearts. But mainly, we use the means He's given us. We bring our decisions before Him in prayer. We fill our minds with the principles of His Word, and we weigh everything by those principles. We seek to be filled with His Spirit. We consult the wisdom of other believers for advice. It seems Gad did none of these things. They just impulsively saw and wanted. And they had to have it. Gad fell into a line of thinking that primarily considered what seemed pleasing to the eyes. And does that not sound familiar if you're in Genesis? It's the same tendency seen since the beginning in Scripture. When Eve was tempted by the devil, it says in Genesis 3.6 that she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and was pleasing to the eye. And this is man's problem. 1 John calls this worldly propensity the lust of the eyes. And Gad's decision, based on his eyes, also resembles another account that ended poorly earlier in Genesis. It's actually almost the same with land. Remember, Abraham's nephew Lot was given options concerning which land his kinsmen would take and possess. And it says as as Lot kind of looked, he, he saw the better land and made his decision based upon the way it looked to him. He, he saw that it was well guarded, well watered, like the garden of the Lord. And he went for it. And all we really know about the results of that is that it, was, it tended to be a poor decision because it led him to pitch his tent towards Sodom, neighboring enemies who would have a poor influence upon him and his family and put them in physical danger and spiritual danger. Uh, what is pleasing to your eye may not always be what is best for you and those who are affected by your decision. The tribe of Gad surely did not consider the, the physical safety of future generations. And they certainly did not consider the, the spiritual pitfalls it could bring. And you and I need God's wisdom when making major decisions. Taking a certain job or a promotion might seem pleasing to the eye and advantageous, an obvious choice. But have you considered the effects it can have upon your soul and the time that it might take away from shepherding your family or being in church? Did that even cross your mind? 
becoming unequally yoked with an unbeliever, whether by marriage or even close friendships. These things can seem pleasing to the eye. We need a social life. Um, but they could reap bitter consequences and many times do. Uh, the list can go on. Uh, where we choose to live can seem advantageous. Uh, where we choose to attend church, hobbies we choose to pursue. Uh, before we give our time and our money and commitment to anything, I think we owe it to our master who owns all these things in our lives to check with him and to ask for wisdom to see if it's the right course for our souls and those around us. And while we're speaking of what is pleasing to the eyes, I, this popped in my mind, that was convicting as well. Uh, let's not forget that the entertainment we set before us might be a poor decision for our spiritual state. Uh, perhaps it will seem harmless to invest your time in a certain show or, or a movie. But maybe it'll contain things that will make you tempted. Maybe it'll take time away that can be given to another responsibility. Maybe it'll just make you spiritually dull. I remember one time I, I recommended a, a show to another believer, a show that I really enjoyed. I think it was a good show. And they said to me, um, I'm gonna, it just really threw me off guard. They said, oh, okay, well, I'm going I'm to pray about it. And I, this was back when I was in college. I, I had never heard anyone say about praying before watching a show. Like, I, I promise, it's good. But their concern was, I, you know, you're recommending me giving all this time to something, and I'm not sure I have the time this semester or whatever it was, and I'm going to go to the Lord about it. It just, it just really threw me. Like, wow. I don't think I've ever prayed before watching a show. But... Um, why wouldn't I? I'm giving hours to something. It just We should always not just go with what seems obvious and pleasing to us, but we should consult wisdom. Perhaps like the tribe of Gad, uh, spiritual enemies from the demonic realm will attack your soul like raiders. Uh, we must seek the wisdom of our good father. Now Gad's prophecy, if you noticed doesn't end on the note of being raided. The verse actually continues. It says, but he shall raid at their heels. Or some versions say, he shall overcome at the last. Now what's interesting about Gad is that over time, they did overcome their enemies. They even chased them out. This is especially an encouragement in light of what we read concerning the falling away of Dan. Throughout the centuries that followed, it's recorded that the Gadites took stock of themselves and would turn back to the Lord and use their experience for His cause. This is a gracious byproduct of the providence of God. The very thing that threatened them actually made them stronger and useful to Him. As I've mentioned last week, God is a, a providential artist this way. Uh, similar to when, what we saw last week, how Levi's consequence of being scattered was graciously used by God to work to the advantage of the nation as a priestly tribe. So Gad, despite their bitter consequence of having raiders, 
They turn to God, and God actually uses it to make them better at fighting. And then they're used to serve God in His purposes. They wouldn't be totally overtaken. They would learn to fight back and to fight really well. I'm going to show you a couple of verses about this. And it says they will overcome. Uh, Judges chapter 3. I know I mentioned Judges a lot. It, it, it's a large time in Israel's history. It's like 300 years. Lots happens then. It says that God in Judges 3, in His sovereign design, was often using Israel's enemies to train them how to fight in warfare. It's an interesting verse. God was actually using even the judgments to, to train them. Uh, there were judges that came from Gad. One is Jair. Some think Jephthah was uh, a Gadite. It says he was from Gilead, which was in that region. Uh, constant exposure to raiders time after time created generations of tough Gadites who grew up always having to fight and become alert and fierce warriors. I want to show you this. Look at First Chronicles chapter 5. I'll have it on the screen there. First Chronicles 5, um, in describing the descendants of the tribes, in verse 20, it describes the Gadites as waging war with a group that's called the Hagrites, among others. And look what it says. It says, And when they, that's Gad, prevailed over them, the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hands, for they cried out to God in the battle. And he granted their urgent plea because they trusted in him. Now that's a, a wonderful verse, considering what we know about Gad's beginnings. They overcame in repentance. The tribe who generations back had only fleshly eyes, now had the eyes of faith. They repented and sought the Lord. And in doing this, He made them valiant in war. A little bit later in the book, 1 Chronicles 12.8, when, when David was fleeing as a, as a fugitive from Saul, it says this about Gad. From the Gadites there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness mighty and experienced Warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. That phrase is really good. Mighty and experienced. They had been raided a long time. And God had used those experiences to shape them into someone, a tribe that could be useful for the kingdom. A few verses later, in the same passage, it says these Gadites were officers of the army. The least was a match for a hundred men, and the greatest for a thousand. God, over time, through the years, had fashioned this tribe for greater usefulness through their experiences. C.S. Lewis once said, experience is the brutalist of teachers, but you learn. And this is instructive for us as well. 
the final lesson I will give today. Um, It's instructive for us because it teaches us that God appoints adversities in our lives to train us in fighting and persevering to the end. God appoints adversities in our lives to train us in fighting and persevering to the end. I want to unpack that a bit. Uh, It's true that it is God who is the one who preserves us. Uh, He's the one who holds us fast. This is not our effort, ultimately. But although He's the one that keeps us, it is also an important scriptural truth that our involvement is not passive. Uh, He does it through a means, and the means is through fighting the good fight of faith and persevering to the end. We call it the perseverance of the saints. And it takes exertion. And it takes effort. And it is a war. And from our standpoint, we must take heed that we overcome. Uh, One of the ways our Lord helps us in this is through appointing the adversities we face in life whether it be spiritual warfare or persecutions or trials or the consequences of our own sin or various things. This is an important part of our lesson that God appoints adversities because we need to know that all of our afflictions and troubles all occur within divine providence. Now, there are multiple reasons trials happen. I'm not going to isolate this one reason, but it is one reason. He's training us. And we need to remember that God sovereignly appoints our troubles, and this has been acknowledged by saints throughout redemptive history, including in Gad. Well, sometimes it helps to be reminded of this straight from God's Word, so I'm just going to give you rapid-fire examples just so you go, oh yeah, that's right. Other saints thought this. Joseph, who we'll talk about next week, he proclaimed that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Meaning that people had participated in their evil deed, but it was ultimately God who was arranging his hardship. Job, in his suffering, proclaimed, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Unless you think, well, he didn't know it was Satan and he didn't know, the, you know behind the scenes that it wasn't God. It says that Job did not sin in all that he said with his lips. It was true. The Lord had taken away. He appointed it. Ruth's mother Naomi said, God has dealt bitterly with me and brought calamity upon my life. When the Apostle Paul was converted, it was said by the Lord in Acts 9.16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It's all from the Lord's hand. And in turn, this gives us a basis for appreciating his design in it. Because he's training us. And he's training us to fight the good fight of faith, and to persevere to the end. Psalm 144, verse 1. The psalmist says, Blessed be the Lord 
my rock, who trains my hands for war. I haven't seen that one on a coffee cup yet. It's a good one because it literally says what we're talking about. God trains our hands for war. Now, we're not in a war with physical armies like Gad and the other tribes, but the principle applies because we do fight actual spiritual battles. And God trains His people's hands for war. In a way that parallels the people of Gad, God makes us experienced warriors. He works in us over time through our own battles to better know our enemy's devices. To learn our own heart's weaknesses and the weak points of our defenses. To make no provision for the flesh. He helps us become more alert over time. The more temptations and things we go through, the more prepared we become as we fight. 